From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today on The Public Morality, we focus on two diverse and indefinable giants of the 20th century. First, we speak with author and Georgetown fellow Paul Eli about the legacy of theologian Reinhold Niebuhr. And after that, renowned musician and music professor Dan Knight stops by to discuss the incomparable Duke Ellington. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Reinhold Niebuhr was, in my view, quite simply the most influential public theologian in 20th century America. 32 years after his death in 1971, he experienced a resurgence in the public discourse by individuals from all corners of the political spectrum in support and in opposition to the Iraq War. So who was Reinhold Niebuhr, and is he still relevant today? To discuss these questions is Paul Eli. Eli is an author and senior fellow with the Berkeley Center for Religion, Peace, and World Affairs at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. Paul Eli, welcome to The Public Morality. Uh, glad to be with you, Byron, and glad to be uh, in conversation about Reinhold Niebuhr. Uh, Reinhold Niebuhr was someone who influenced the thinking of individuals as diverse as Martin Luther King and to John Foster Douglas. And, and so it, with that said, he's probably indef- indefinable in, a, in any literal sense, but... Who is Reinhold Niebuhr to you? Reinhold Niebuhr was a great American, a great Christian, a great writer, and a person who thought with unusual clarity about current affairs and how to make sense of them in terms of human nature and from a biblical perspective. Now, back in 2007, you you, you wrote a wonderful piece, which I assigned to my students this year, uh, about Reinhold Niebuhr. uh, a, a Man for All Reasons, I believe the title is. That's uh, right. Um, but since you wrote that piece in the Atlantic, has your thinking evolved at all or changed in any way about Niebuhr? Well, let's see. So the argument of the piece was that Niebuhr, who had said to have been forgotten about 15 years ago, has since enjoyed uh, a really striking uh, revival in of attention, let's say. And striking because, first of all, that attention has come from people on very different places on the political spectrum. People have invoked Niebuhr to represent or to, to buttress pretty divergent views of what we should do in war and peace, especially. On top of that, it argued that uh, this Niebuhr revival was owing to uh, the fact that, in particular, then-candidate Barack Obama uh, had cited Niebuhr as a formidable influence. So I took those two things together, um, tried to track the presence of Niebuhr in contemporary thought. So that was 2007. Since then, it's interesting to see. On the one hand, that attention to Niebuhr has really um, continued unabated. There's been even more attention. His books that were out of print when I wrote the piece have now been reissued with sumptuous introductions and jacket text saying essentially what I said in the piece, that uh, this is the mid-century public intellectual who's as pertinent as ever uh, for people in our time. At the same time, some of my reading for other projects led me back uh, to commentaries and roundtable discussions and so forth from the 70s and 80s 
And already then, people are saying, why don't we have someone like Reinhold Niebuhr today? <laughs> so for 30, 35 years now, a third of a century, people have been lamenting the absence of a public intellectual of Niebuhr's stature. So that's, at this point, feels like a permanent condition that every 10 years, a new crowd comes along to say, where are the intellectuals for our time who have the stature and the gravitas of Reinhold Niebuhr? It's a long answer to a short question, but I hope that speaks to the No, it, it does indeed. Um, and so for, for, for those of us, uh, for those who may be listening right now, who may be uh, un, unfamiliar with some of the central uh, Niburian terms, I'm going to throw out a couple words, and I'd have, like to have you comment on them. Uh, f- the first one is irony. So Niebuhr's last significant book was called The Irony of American History. And the irony of American history has to do with the fact that uh, what we would call unintended consequences today, that American history um, founded on a certain kind of idealism, but it was an idealism rooted in a biblical view of the world. And for Niebuhr, the biblical view of the world was uh, the basis for what he called Christian realism. So the irony of American history has to do with uh, the fact that again and again in American history, as I understand it, um, people who undertake this or that form of idealism are, are, are brought down to earth or brought low by uh, what turns out to be an often harsh form of realism. Uh, the next word is paradox. For Niebuhr and for a lot of other people, uh, a deep understanding of the Christian worldview involves a lot of paradox. The, the Christian or the biblically-minded person, because I include a lot of his, uh, a lot of his associates, uh, looked at the Hebrew Bible. They were Jewish, but they had the same uh, similar sense of realism. And the paradox is that uh, this person believes, uh, has a very exalted view of human nature in the sense that we're made in the image of God, and yet has a very keen sense of human limits. Our projects are wounded by sinfulness. We don't... Uh, they never come out quite the way we intended. Human weakness and pride get in the way of everything. Nobody does anything uh, for a pure motive or just for the right reasons. Lots of base motives are mixed in. And this, this is the paradox of the human condition, really. And it's the paradox of, of human dealings in, in political society for Niebuhr, that uh, we're, we're such an exalted species, and yet... Uh, we're our, undo, un, our own undoing so often. The final word, uh, self-interest. So the Enlightenment, um, and this is a kind of you know, University 101 version of the Enlightenment that I'm about to put out, but uh, Enlightenment thinkers uh, present human motivation as um, enlightened self-interest. And if you get a lot of individual actors acting together in enlightened self-interest, you have a good... Uh, functioning society, a functioning economy, a capitalist economy, functioning a political society in which lots of people working out of enlightened self-interest then um, compromise to try to get uh, what Mill, say, would call the greatest good for the greatest number. So for Niebuhr, uh, self-interest is not a sufficient basis for an understanding of human nature or for the founding of a political society because uh, our self-interests are too confused. Uh, they're too bound up with pride. Uh, we don't act as rational individuals. 
uh, were members of groups, of tribes, of nations, of communities. Uh, a lot of times our behavior isn't governed by self-interest. We're violent in spite of ourselves. We carry out our projects beyond any uh, re reasonable point where we should wrap them up. Uh, we're our own worst enemies, let's say. So to, to found a society on the notion of enlightened self-interest is to be, for, for Niebuhr, naive about how society works and about how human beings work. He also saw good and evil as inextricably linked, and I could see that would put him in tension with a lot of uh, 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 Christian thinkers at the, at the time when he, when he introduced that. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that, because when candidate Obama referenced Niebuhr, he referenced Niebuhr specifically because Niebuhr, more than other thinkers of that period, uh, gave account of the fact that, as Obama put it, there is serious evil in the world. So a lot of mainline American Protestants who emerged at the turn of the 20th century were informed by what's called the social gospel. Uh, good people, let's get together and make a better society because uh, our faith calls us to do it, uh, our sense of progress calls us to do it, our sense of the opportunities that await us in this relatively new country, the United States, uh, calls us to do it. Against that, uh, Niebuhr had to assert the existence of evil and the need to do unattractive things sometimes to oppose evil. Uh, the obvious instance uh, is the rise of Hitler in the middle 30s. Niebuhr had been a pacifist. Uh, he wanted to do the morally attractive thing, the good thing, in as many instances as possible. And along comes Hitler, and there's no uh, good and decent way to stop this madman. You're going to have to oppose force with force. You're going to have to muster armies, and innocent people are going to die, and the European map is going to be withdrawn, and there's going to be a lot of pain for Western society for years and years until you can expunge this evil. Uh, but he called other Christians to abandon what he saw of it as, a, as a naivete about evil and to call evil by its name. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Paul Eli, author and a fellow at the Berkeley Center for Religion, Peace, and World Affairs at Georgetown University. Many people are probably aware of Niebuhr without actually knowing it, and I'm, I'm of, of course, referring to the serenity prayer uh, that, that reads, God give us the grace to accept with serenity the things we cannot, change, cannot be changed, courage to change the things which should be changed, and the wisdom to distinguish the one from the other. And I've heard you talk in previous interviews and you see these words as reflective, at least in a macro context, of the Niburian outlook. Could you give us a brief history of, of the prayer and also explain why these words serve as an adequate distillation of Niebuhr's thinking? So first things first, about the prayer, there's some question as to its origins and to whether the authorship should rest with Niebuhr. Uh, and some of this has come out since I wrote the Atlantic article, which was published in 20, 2007. His daughter, Elizabeth Sifton, wrote a book about uh, the authorship of the prayer and you know, locates it firmly at, you know, as this is her father's prayer. Other people have produced very similar prayers from that period and saying this was, in effect, shareware of that time. Uh, ministers uh, passed around uh, texts and prayers without perturbing themselves over who was the author. If it was a useful invocation of the deity or a way to express... Uh, uh, 
society, they would just use it. And this one came to be associated with Reinhold Niebuhr. That's the other argument. I'm honestly not up on the scholarship, so I don't know where that is right now. But as far as the distillation of Niebuhr's thought, um, it's really vital because basically Niebuhr's realism um, invites people to understand that uh, most human projects don't work out the way people expect. Uh, there are unintended consequences. They don't achieve their ends. Uh, human weakness, just the way of things, the stubbornness of human nature, the difficulty of actually affecting real change in society, all these things get in the way of people making changes to society that they'd like to make. So you go back to the prayer. Uh, the prayer invites um, the person who's, who's uttering the prayer or thinking the prayer to have the serenity to accept the things that uh, we cannot change, um, the courage to change the things that we can, and the wisdom to know the difference. So transpose this into politics. Uh, there are certain situations that can be changed. We can see the civil rights movement in this country. Uh, the uh, conditions of life for African Americans were significantly changed by people who had the courage to change the things they could. Then there are other situations in which uh, it seems that no amount of human effort can affect substantial change. The situation in the Middle East seems to be one of them, at least from the point of view of America and its allies. Change is possible in that region, but very little that we as a country seem to do seems to have a um, clear, lasting effect in the Middle East. So that's an instance, in Niburian terms, uh, something that, that can't be changed, that we have to accept um, with a kind of serenity. And then for the political actor, the whole question, day after day, issue after issue, is involves this act of discernment, the wisdom to know the difference. How can we tell which undertakings uh, are worth committing to because they could actually affect change? And which ones do we need to stand aside from because uh, we're not going to really affect change? How can we have the wisdom to know the difference? How can we have a, uh, have a political life in which we can persuade others to see things the way we do, to discern between things that we can change and things that we can't? You, you spoke earlier uh, briefly about the resurgence uh, of, of, of Niebuhr since his death in 1971. Uh, that really uh, came about with the... Uh, around the uh, time of the preemptive uh, strike against Iraq. Uh, but would you consider that resurgence to really uh, be about Niebuhr sort of to justify what one already feels, or is it really a resurgence in his thinking? I think it is a resurgence in his thinking for a bunch of reasons. One is that uh, there just aren't so many th uh, thinkers whose character, whose thought has a permanent character that's well-written enough, that isn't wedded to particular conflicts, that uh, has deep literary and philosophical and religious roots. There aren't so many of them, so the ones that do exist um, really stand out. Niebuhr is a perennial. His work has now been discovered by a younger generation, King's generation, a generation younger than that, let's say the generation of people like Stanley Hauerwas, the theologian I mentioned in my article, and now by a current generation uh, let's say best represented by Andrew Basevich, who's a mm -hmm. pretty strenuous thinker on war and peace, who's active right now, and then by college students and divinity school students today. So you've got four generations since Niebuhr, all embracing a thought.
out in different ways. A lot of people would say there's a further reason for it, which is that thinkers of his stature haven't come along to supplant him. There's something to that. There's a kind of paranoid school that says you're not allowed to be a religious intellectual anymore in this country, and that kind of thinking is stifled. So that's why we don't have any more Niebuhrs. There's another view, uh, which I would associate with the left, which would say, no, the problem is that most of those thinkers have um, you know, whored themselves out to partisan causes. Niebuhr uh, transcended political party, at least in his writings, so we can still look to him as a point of reference, where his successors have signed on with um, the Reagan Revolution or signed on uh, with Bernie Sanders or signed on with some other particular political movement so that their work doesn't, um, doesn't serve as a point of reference outside of particular conflicts. You know, I was just thinking as, as you were um, outlining that, that there was also a time in our history where whether one was, say, a believer or non-believer, that religious language sort of permeated the culture in a way that it doesn't today, at the time, you know, given the time when Niebuhr was uh, making his mark. I think that's right, and that's a very involved discussion. <laughs> you, can't re- you can't remake the whole culture in order to produce a new Niebuhr or a new generation of thinkers who, who think along Niebuhrian lines. I think about a little more simply, especially because I'm um, raising children in this society. I think, and I'm going to put it in a way that's not specifically religious so that you can, um, I hope the point of it will be a little clearer. The biblical tradition that um, Niebuhr came from had a strong sense of human frailty and limitation. We're extraordinary creatures, and yet each of us, to some extent, is who he is. There's certain things we do well, certain things we don't do well, certain vices that we have, whether it's anger or pride or laziness, that we work all our lives to get over. And I think for generations in our society, that was just understood, that we're limited creatures, each of us got problems, we're going to be our best self, but we're going to be ourselves and not somebody else. I think in the last couple of generations, society has moved away from that view and toward a more protean view of you can be whoever you want to be, whether it's through um, money or through education or through having a different online identity or through gender reassignment or whatever. There's really no limits to the self. The self, um, what the Harvard scholar Stephen Greenback calls self-fashioning, that we fashion ourselves. And when you have that view, uh, your your civic life and your politics looks very different. I think it moves between the extremes of perfectionism and pathology. That people today, we constantly think of ourselves as either, why can't we perfect ourselves in a certain way? Or, and if we can't, we're screwed up. If we're not on the path toward perfection, becoming you know, a concert violinist or something, we're on the way to pathology. We're you know, screwed up people who can't learn anything new. And it's a pretty unforgiving, and here the religious language comes back in, uh, sense of human nature. And I think Niebuhr's realism begins with a realism about the human person, and that's why I find it so attractive. Well, one of the things that's always struck me about Niebuhr's writings is something that I would classify uh, as restraint and caution, even in his declarations or, or support um, for a war in, in, in overthrowing Hitler. But ironically, to use uh, one of Niebuhr's terms, uh, 
there's a justification of, the, of his position of late to infuse their analysis with certainty, which I, which is the antithesis of the Niebuhr approach. Now, I'm thinking like with David Brooks on one side, Peter Biner on the other, who were all very certain about their positions on the war using the uh, Niebuhrian thinking, which, but, but that sort of caution was absent. I was wondering how you saw that. Very definitely. Uh, Biner, was, uh, he ignored, he abandoned all scruple and uh, incautiously supported the war, then corrected himself by writing a book about how he had um, gone astray, calling it the Icarus Syndrome, it's basically a Niburian argument, um, beginning with his, you know, chastening himself, but then chastening the whole political culture along with him. But there's still a lot of hubris in it. He accepted in a book advance of three or four hundred thousand dollars for that book. Uh, it didn't sell at all. Uh, I think it, in the marketplace of ideas, um, people really want to have figures who are totally sure of themselves, and um, it's dangerous out there for someone willing to be ambiguous, to recognize his own flaws, to say that he's not sure about some things the way Niebuhr did. Given um, that we live in a world today that Reinhold Niebuhr would not recognize, how might we best appropriate his thinking? Well, Byron, I would question the assumption there. I do think that uh, Niebuhr would recognize our world, very much so. One of the great things about uh, Niebuhr's work is the what I call the perennial quality of it. There's a sense in which uh, nation rises up against nation and peoples wore it out and societies contend for the spoils of war and the spoils of peace, you know, material goods, wealth, territory, property. This is true in 1932 when Moral Man and Immoral Society came out, and it's true in 2016. So I think uh, he he would recognize our world altogether. You know, there's also, um, there's always been this attempt to sort of bifurcate Niebuhr in that either he is, either he's a, a theologian or he's a uh, political thinker. And, and, as, and as he did with good and evil, rarely is his thinking intertwined. I was wondering, do you, do you see that in, also in the appropriation of Niebuhr today? Right. I, I think people call him a theologian because it seems exotic and powerful. Um, I, uh, you know, I would pick a more all-encompassing appellation like man of ideas. Uh, um, a lot of those ideas were religious ideas, but he wasn't, as, as religious figures go, he was more interested in man and the human person and in human society more than in God. Properly, theology is this, you know reflection on God. Uh, when Niebuhr's sights were, you know, very much on what Augustine called the city of man, <laughs> and so in that sense, I don't think theologian's really accurate. But of course, he's not a narrowly political thinker. I don't think public intellectual is accurate because an intellectual is is a, is a speculative figure who will follow some ideas wherever they will go. Uh, Niebuhr was a, you know, a very practical thinker, and that's why I would say man of ideas. He had certain ideas that came from his background as a, as a pastor, uh, as um, a, st- a student of political history, student of biblical history, but he had these ideas, and he would um, try to work them out in particular situations in you know, mid-century American life. You know, just in terms of intertwining 
pop, po, you know, political thinking and religion, uh, I guess, and um, in the same way how good and evil are intertwined, you know, one of my favorite uh, uh, you know, Nabooian quotes is, man's capacity for justice makes democracy possible, but man's inclination to injustice makes it necessary. We could also apply that to his thoughts on religion also, could we not? Very definitely. So to substitute the word religion for justice, is that what you're thinking? Yeah, yeah. Man's capacity for can you do it? Uh, oh, okay, yeah, sure. I, can, I I'm I'm happy to, I'm happy to do it for you. Man's capacity uh, for reli- for for justice makes religion possible, but man's inclination to injustice makes religion necessary. Would that work? Yes, <laughs> I think with an important qualification, and that um, Niebuhr was still enough of a traditionalist that he didn't uh, see religion as um, a pure human invention. There's an aspect of revealed truth to this, or that religion is revealed, that to a certain extent, um, uh, Christianity at least, and I think Niebuhr would include Judaism also, is a, is a response to the to God's self-revelation. So in that sense, um, we don't decide whether religion is necessary. Uh, religion is, um, is natural to the human person. Uh, we... Um, it's a response to something that comes from outside of ourselves. So in that sense, uh, it's just a slight um, subtlety that I want to bring out. But otherwise, yes, that uh, we're, um, we're, we're sufficiently just that we can uh, have whole systems of justice that are rooted in, in biblical justice, and yet we're sufficiently unjust that we, we corrupt them, we um, muck them up all the time and that all the religions are, are as broken as any other social institutions. And, uh, I, and I know um, you've already stated that the difficulty f- for the, the cries uh, for wanting each generation to, w- to want a new neighbor, I, I think probably um, maybe Arthur Schlesinger was the, the, the last um, one that I remember that really made that cry loud in, in a piece he did in the New York Times. I think you referenced that in your piece as well. But... What could there be at least a Niebuhr model? What would that model look like in the 21st century? Is that also just an impossibility? Oh, I don't think it's impossible at all. I think those figures are out there. You know, people on the left would say that Cornell West is the Niebuhr of our time. He's right at Union Seminary where Niebuhr taught. Um, people on the right often held up Richard John Newhouse, the late Lutheran and then Catholic um, thinker, as a Niebuhr for our time. Already, the way I frame things suggests one difference. The right and the left each has his own, its own figure. Another is just that um, we have a more, I don't like the word, but a more fragmented media ecosystem. You know, Niebuhr was on the cover of Time magazine probably more than once. Uh, when you had a few giant organs of the mass media, the, the people who were um, identified as important by those organs were important nationally. Now you've got lots more smaller sources of information. So instead of having a, a few titanic figures who kind of uh, preside over society, you've got lots and lots of really talented people, none of which has the stature that uh, is going to get him onto the cover of Time magazine, which doesn't matter all that much anyway. I was going to say, if that has stat- assuming that still has stature the way it once did. Right. right. Well, Paul, Eli, I, I want to thank you for uh, taking the time to be on the public rally today. We, we very much appreciate your time, sir. Thank you. It's uh, very stimulating to talk with you, Byron. I really appreciate it. Thank Have you. A great day. That was Paul Eli. Coming up, 
my discussion with Dan Knight about the great Duke Ellington. If I said, take the A-Train, Satin Doll, Mood Indigo, I suspect for a number of you the name Duke Ellington would immediately come to mind. For over 50 years, he was the quintessential American composer, pianist, and band leader. Joining me to discuss Ellington is Dan Knight. Knight is a celebrated jazz pianist. He is also a professor at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. Dan Knight, welcome to The Public Morality. Hey, Brother Byron, it's wonderful to be here. Oh, Thank we're, you. We're, we're honored to have you. Um, during our first segment, um, I was interviewing Paul Eli, and we were talking about Reinhold Niebuhr, and one of the things that we discussed was Niebuhr was so complex in many ways he was indefinable. You can make the similar argument for Duke Ellington. That's exactly right. So well, let's just narrow it down. Who is Duke Ellington to you, and how do you define him? <clears throat> to me... Um, Duke Ellington is my grandfather. Duke is Duke is Duke is my grandfather. Um, without Duke Ellington, I would cease to be. Um, Duke Ellington was the first Steinway artist in uh, in history, and uh, because of Duke Ellington, uh, because Duke was a Steinway artist, Billy Taylor could be a Steinway artist, and because Billy Taylor could be a Steinway artist, I could. So, uh, so without without that lineage, Dan, I would not be. And Dan, for our listeners, what's a Steinway artist? <clears throat> a Steinway artist is a is a roster that's based of um, probably ninety to ninety five percent of the upper echelon of all the uh, performing pianists in the world right now. And uh, of those few people, uh, there are probably fewer than fifty who are improvising musicians. So. Uh, uh, and at the time Duke became a Steinway artist, there was only one. It was him. So uh, uh, he had this thing that he said when somebody was so extraordinary that they defied description, and uh, he would call them beyond category. And I think the first person to be actually beyond category would be Duke Ellington. Just like he defies description. He, he defies classification. He defies uh, uh, pigeonholing. In any sense, he, he refused to let himself be pigeonholed by, by anything that he had done himself. Even he didn't want to be classified by any of his success or limited by it. Uh, he he wanted the opportunity to uh, to expand, to continue to create, to create in a way that was new for him and interesting for him. And he didn't want to be limited by his past success or his past failure. So uh, uh, so who's Duke Ellington? You know what? I don't think anybody really knows. <laughs> Actually, that's probably the best. That's probably the best uh, answer I've heard. That's probably the best one. Um, well, let me. You know, one of the things that it occurred to me, and, and certainly um, correct me if I'm wrong in my thinking here, but there seemed to be always, especially in the jazz era, there was always someone else having the at least the public's attention. I mean, right. We, we, we even go back to Armstrong. But, and, then, and, then, yes. and then Benny Goodman and Chick Webb and, yes. and Duke is right there. And then yes. then you get the age of bebop. And, but, but Duke is right there, not, all, not 
rarely is he first, but he's always there. Yes. And, and then you go to Miles Davis, and uh, but Duke is right there. So yes. was there a moment in his uh, career where he was indeed the focal point of the Jazz discussion, at least from the public's perspective? Um, in the United States, I don't think so. Um, in Europe, yes. Um, there was uh, there was a Europe waiting for Duke Ellington at the end of World War II that was ready to to get back to business in in, in a very important way. And uh, uh, one of my prized possessions is uh, uh, is a magazine from the Hot Club of France, and uh, it was the first. It was issue number one, number one um, issue one, volume one for. Um, the first one they published at the end of the war, and it has Duke Ellington's picture on the front cover, and it announces when Duke is coming back to play, and uh, for them a return to normalcy and the healing part of the process at the end of the war had to include Duke Ellington's music. So, uh, and when you go to places like Oslo, where I've been, and to Stockholm, where I, I played at a place called Nalen, and, and, and actually got to be a presenter for the International Duke Ellington Society, and you walk into this building, and here's here's this huge plaque placed there by the government of Sweden, acknowledging that Duke Ellington performed in this place in such and such a date in 1945. You know, he was he meant everything to them. And the fact that he was so inclusive in his uh, his uh, his work and and and, and uh, uh, actually had some folks from Sweden who came and played with him at that time. Uh, it meant it meant so much to them that they that they had to uh, uh, acknowledge that with a plaque that would stay there forever. Uh, so so in Europe, yes, um, on the Eastern Bloc, even more so, but. Uh, uh, Duke Ellington represented freedom to to everyone in in the world who heard him, and uh, uh, to some of us in the United States, he did too. You know, I I, re- I recall um, listening to an interview by Dave Brubeck, uh, and this is back during the day when um, our, our our media access was very limited, so magazines like Time were a big deal. Right. And um, anyway, Dave Brubeck was lamenting that he had made the cover of Time Magazine before Duke Ellington. And, and that's got to be, that's, that's post-World War II. That's the 50s when they, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and, it, and, and I mean, to, to, to go that same direction, I, I actually uh, got to, to see a friend of mine, Winton Marsalis, right after Blood on the Fields was nominated and had won the Pulitzer Prize. And, uh, and uh, um I saw him after the concert where he had actually performed this in Iowa, and, and I went backstage, and I walked up to him, and, uh, and he started to cry, and I put my arms around him, and I said, man, you rang the bell. You rang the bell for everyone. You rang the bell for Duke. And the reason he rang the bell for Duke is because not only did Blood on the Fields get awarded the Pulitzer Prize, but they went back and re-gave the real Pulitzer Prize to Duke Ellington, the one that he had been awarded back in the 50s. They gave him the, they gave him the Pulitzer Prize, and then they decided, no, we can't give you the Pulitzer Prize. We can't give you the real thing. We're going to give you um, a nominal Pulitzer Prize, something that reflects your life's work. Um, but uh, uh, so the, and, and when that happened, when the Pulitzer was rescinded from Duke and, and uh, they gave him a smaller version of it, kind of created a special award for him, the people on the Pulitzer Committee that nominated him all walked off. They said, you can't do that to Duke Ellington. 
So uh, uh, Duke's comment was, of, uh, of course, uh, Gentleman Lee and, and he, like Mr. Obama, took the high road. He said, uh, well, you know, fate has just decided not to make me too successful in my lifetime. <laughs> so, uh, so there's always been that. There's always been that for Duke. And, and, uh, uh, and if you talk with Stanley Crouch about it, you'll hear a lot also. You know, in, 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 I've had some interesting discussions with Stanley. We, he and I both are in agreement. There, there are two great bands that lasted for over 40 years. One of them was the Haydn Orchestra, and that happened because of the Esterhazy family. So Haydn stayed in one place and just wrote all his music and never had to worry about what he was going to eat or where his musicians were going to live or what they were going to do. And then there's the Ellington Orchestra, who did it for something like, what, 48 years. Yeah. And Duke did, Duke did it by being a musician, by being on the road, by going out and taking risks and not knowing what was going to happen from day to day. You know, one of the things that... Um I read in, in preparation of, of, of our getting together, uh, one writer suggested that he's almost like Shakespeare in, in that he uses music, and you sort of touched on this earlier, to, to capture the varying moods of the human condition. Yeah, true. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and Duke even used Shakespeare. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> so as good artists yeah. do, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, you know, I mean, Duke was Duke was eloquent in the sense that he understood how to get right to the heart of the matter, and and his music spoke to spoke to the emotions of not just his time, which is what makes him which is what makes him universal. Uh, he spoke to the emotion and the feeling of what it meant to be a human being, and. Uh, uh, you know, and that, and and that is that just is quintessential. That that reaches beyond time and space, and and uh, goes right to the heart of each of us if we have a heart to listen. And if we listen and we hear it, Duke speaks to us. And uh, and you know what I think? As long as there's music and people playing it, there will always be Duke Ellington, and he will always be there to do that, just that, to remind us of who we are and what we can do and what we can be. You know, we talked earlier about. Um there was always someone else dominating the public discourse. So with that in mind, um, put into context the, uh, the importance in Duke's career at that time, uh, the 1957 Newport Jazz Festival. Oh. <laughs> oh, man. Duke was, and if you go back and read some of his writings and some of the things that were going on around him, people were starting to give him pressure because uh, uh, some of the producers and people who were around were, were saying that, uh, that Duke had become, quote-unquote, passé. Uh, and some of the musicians, some of the people who were current at the time were giving him a hard time over the whole process, and, and that's to put it politely. Um, some of them were, were young and, and feeling their oats and thinking, wow, this is a new music, this is a new place, this is a new way to play, this is a new way to be. And, uh, and with, uh, with the new culture of bebop came a new way to dress and a new way to live and a new way to talk to each other and a new way to, uh, to communicate in music. And, uh, and uh, Duke was at risk of being marginalized. I mean, to the point even where, where, where he played at Newport that night, he played the last band of the night and it was after all of the stellar new people had all performed so uh, uh, and even then the producers who put the thing together were thought they were taking a risk at putting Duke on the program to begin with so uh, so he went in with the thing and he said uh, 
he told all the co-creators in his band, because that's how he looked at all of those folks who played with him. You know, he said, uh, this is what we're going to do. We're going to, especially with the Diminuendo Crescendo in Blue, uh, those are two pieces of music. Those are two individual pieces of music. And he said, uh, we need a long piece for this. And uh, so this is what we're going to do at the end of Diminuendo in Blue. We're going to put a bridge, and the bridge is going to be a solo, and it's going to be a Paul Gonzalez. And he said, you just take it until uh, you feel you said what you have to say, and then, uh, and then I'll give the signal, and we'll go into a crescendo in blue. And, uh, I mean, like, literally, it, it all kind of, like, went down to that song. Right. You know, because that whole thing, the whole set was, the set was just Duke Ellington stuff, Duke doing Duke, Ell- Duke Ellington, and nothing really caught fire until, until Paul Gonzalez started to play. And somebody in the front of the crowd started to dance. And the second, the second, see, I'm going to cry when I talk about this man, because it, you know, because uh, uh, all of those guys out there in that band were saying to themselves, we're going to show that we're not, we're, that we're not passe, that we have something to say, and that what we do has value, and that who we are has value, and what we've done has value, and what we continue to be able to present to folks has value. So it was all, they're just kind of laying on it. And, uh, and uh, when it started to catch, and the audience started to dance, and things just started to go nuts, and the more they went nuts, the better Paul Gonzalez played, the more he played. You could hear Duke in the background going, yes, yes, go, go. You know, he's coaching it, man, but he's sitting and he's playing the groove at the same time, you know, and the band is just playing and playing and playing and swinging and swinging and swinging harder and swinging more, and they're not doing anything that they hadn't done previously. Well, you know, as, 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 as a pianist, we're talking here with a uh, uh, renowned musician and uh, professor at the University of North Carolina School of Arts, Dan Knight. And as a musician, Dan, th- there are those moments yes. where you sort of, like say in a sports term, uh, you get into a zone. Mm-hmm. And, and that seemed like a collective zone. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and, it, and it's, it's kind of funny in a way. But, but if you listen to Duke Ellington's music as a musician, and I can't tell you how many bands I played with so many people in so many places, and you go around the, around the United States or around the world even, and if you're on a break somewhere and you've just played or if you're playing at a club and you played for an hour and 15 minutes or two hours or three hours, you're getting ready to play the last set, and somebody, somebody in a club from somewhere was playing background music, the second, I mean like the second, somebody starts playing a piece by Ellington, I don't care how tired you are. I don't care how long you played. Every musician in the place will go to their instruments and be compelled to play along. There's just a thing about Ellington. It's like an invitation to a party. Hmm. It's an invitation to the hippest thing you would ever want to go to. And it's like the man is standing there at the door just saying, hey, man, come on over. There's a spot here for you. Come and sit. Come and play. Come on, you know. Well, let's talk about your your direct connection with Duke Ellington and the Smithsonian Institute. Ah, cool. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's um, I was talking with a guy who is uh, uh, the former uh, curator of American music at the Smithsonian. His name was Martin Williams, and uh, he's somebody I got to know through uh, uh, the festival at Sandpoint, this thing that Gunther Schuller used to do uh, out in Sandpoint, Idaho. Uh, 
which is I thought was the coolest thing in the whole world in the middle of skinhead I've nation. been to Sandpoint, Idaho. <laughs> I just never put jazz and Sandpoint, Idaho together, having been there. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, so so uh, so it was it was it was kind of crazy. But uh, uh, Martin had just mentioned to me uh, when we were there that he had just received uh, this this enormous giant huge archive from Mercer Ellington. And I said, well, what's in it? And he said, well, we don't know. And I said, well, how did you get it? And he said, Mercer, Mercer was uh, Mercer Duke uh, Mercer's, Mercer's Duke Ellington's son. And uh, he just happened to mention that, uh, that, uh, that his dad, Duke, had, uh, had been telling him for decades, you know, just to take these charts. We don't play them anymore. Take this thing, take that thing, uh, and just throw it away. We don't have time to carry it all on the road with us. It's just getting in the way of all of our stuff. So just take it out and burn it or throw it in the trash or something. And, and Mercer decided he wasn't going to do that. So, and he also knew his father well enough to, uh, to know that if he told his dad that he was saving it, that that would stop happening. <laughs> he just, Duke could just find another way to get rid of it. So, so, uh, so Mercer started stashing his stuff in his basement. Then he started stashing his stuff in his basement, in his garage. And then sure enough, he was like putting it in his storage facilities and, you know, anyway, so they had like tons and tons and tons and tons and tons of material. And, uh, um, and Mercer decided to give it to the Smithsonian. So he gave it to the Smithsonian, and, and Martin Williams got a hold of it, and, and he was freaked out by what was there because there was stuff from the 20s and the 30s and things from the 40s and 50s and really, really, really important things. And, and, uh, uh, and Martin started to get it classified, and then before he could get it all done, he passed away. So uh, the new guy, um, John Hassey, is somebody that I had met just after he got the job of uh, stepping into Martin Williams' footsteps and—, and uh, uh, so I asked him, I said, you know, I said, uh, what would it take to, to, uh, to get to go look at some of that? Because uh, I, I particularly really, really, really was really interested in the, the concerts of sacred music that he started doing in 1968. So, and I'd heard from a lot of people who were, who were friends and colleagues of Duke that he wrote right up until he passed away. I mean, like literally in the hospital. Um, so I said I wanted to see some of that if I could, just because there had to be some great things that were there that nobody had seen and Duke probably never got to hear, played anyway. So, uh, so I was curious, and so I asked John Hassey. I said, "What would it take to do that?" And he said, "Well, Dan, you said I was teaching at Grinnell College back then." He said, "You're teaching at Grinnell College," but I said, "You're," he says, "like you're you're a Steinway artist and you play jazz and you're protege of Billy Taylor's. All you have to do is just put a request in." And I said, "You're serious." <laughs> so, so that's what I did. So, um, so uh, I figured out a way to get to Washington D.C. And my wife and I went. We took my mother-in-law, and uh, I spent a week in the Ellington Archive, just looking at the last two or three years of Duke's life. And uh, it was the closest thing anybody will have now to looking over his shoulder. Yeah. Well, you did a little more than just, you know, I happen to know you, you, you did a little more. So talk about the little more. Oh, the did. little more that I do. It's kind yes. of interesting just because they had lots of things, you know, for, for, you know, and I was never familiar with it until I went there. But they have everything in the archive in boxes, in boxes with labels. And then they try to, they try to label everything that's in the box. So like say it would be box 174 and it would say pieces of, pieces of, uh, um, Something, something, concerto, and piece of piece of this, or piece of I got it bad and that it good, and and the section from 1974 of of the third concert of sacred music, and then it would be fragment something, fragment something, fragment, 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 and um, 
So I so I started looking at some of these things, and I would look at some of the fragments as I was looking through the boxes that had things from Duke's last two years of his life, and and I would I would look at something, and I'd go like, wait a minute, this is a piece, this is a piece of music. It's like the second section of uh, this little page, this fragment is the second section of this such and such song, and uh, something from the Far East Suite, and uh, and. Uh, and so I, so I went, I got a hold of the, uh, the minder who was there with me, who got a hold of the librarian. I said, look, I know what this is. This is a piece of, from the Far East Suite, and it's the second section, and it's this page. And they're like, well, how do you know? And I said, I can hear it. <laughs> so, so I could, you know, it's like you read, you read music the same way you read words. You know, you read the thing, and you can hear somebody speaking to you. So... So I could look at the music and go, what was there? You know, this is this is the piano part for that. And then, uh, so I started doing that, and uh, it was kind of frustrating at first because the, the first day, I did it, and I said, well, this thing for this fragment from 174 goes to this box from 150 something that I saw, and that goes into the second page of that particular piece. And they said, well, you can't move it. You have to let the archivists come in and take a look at it and see if you're right. So the first day. Uh, they were kind of skeptical, but I went back the second day and they said, oh, you were right about that stuff that you did. But, you know, thank you. And I said, oh, cool. So so uh, second day I found some more things and they were kind of a little chagrined by that because it meant that they had to call the archivist in and then something else had to happen. And and uh, so sure enough, day two, I found some more, I mean, even more things and, and, uh, and could identify pieces that they hadn't been able to identify and, and, uh, so now they were, they were like, uh, just kind of a little ticked off, <laughs> you know. But then day three when I did, I walked in and I said, okay, this belongs to this thing. This belongs to that thing. And that's here and this is there. And, and then like day three, they kind of said, wow, it wasn't a fluke, you know. So so you were using your ear to look over yes, Duke's shoulder. Yes, using my <laughs> ear to look over Duke's shoulder. And, and uh and 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 I found some incredible things on top of that. There's a version of uh, uh, the Lord's Prayer that's just written on a script. Duke even didn't even have a piece of manuscript paper, so he wrote five little lines and wrote the melody and then the chord changes. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, there were a couple of things like that. The Twenty Third Psalm. There's another version of that, and uh, um, lots and lots of those kind of things. They were just they were just there in his notes that uh, that somebody's got to play. So there's so many ways we could, we could go with this. Um, we as we could talk about Duke Ellington for days, more than the time we have allowed. In the you, you and I have done that, man. We, we have indeed. <laughs> well, Cl- closing thoughts um, on Duke Ellington for you. Duke will always be. He will always be universal. He will always be American, totally American at the same time. He will always speak of the African-American tradition in a proud and profound way. And he will speak of the transcendence of that tradition. And in spite of all the injustice, in spite of all the prejudice, in spite of all the pain, he was loving and transcended in that love. And he expressed that completely in his music. So for anyone who 
who has been in pain or has suffered, who has been what they felt like alone, um, Duke has something to say to you. It's like, don't give up. Love, play, speak the truth. Speak it plainly, speak it confidently, and sing it with all your heart. And when you do, you will live up to Duke Ellington. And that's the best we can do. Dan Knight, thank you for being on the public rally today. That was Dan Knight. Coming up, my closing remarks. And now for my closing remarks. In lieu of my more traditional closing statements, it seemed only appropriate, given my conversation with Dan Knight about Duke Ellington, that we allow Ellington to have the last word in the form of his Creole love call.
Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. And for those who would like to hear the archive broadcasts, you can find those at our website, which is publicmorality.com. That's our show for today. The Public Morality is produced by WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. Bye. <laughs>